think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 65 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 66th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Aitzen Rainville. Thank you. And uh, this week we are we are back uh, from well into the stride of the new year here. And it's been actually a pretty... Uh, eventful couple of weeks we have the federal cabinet shuffle which we we didn't quite get around to last time uh it either happened day of or no like it happened the next, the next the next day, day. okay so yeah. there was nothing really to comment okay on well yet. there you go then we weren't there uh there's been a bombshell i think we can actually use that here report in british columbia about the behavior of some of the officers of the, of the legislature okay, bc's proving to really be a banana republic these days yes uh the wild west of canadian political financing even you could say uh, yeah as well as money laundering uh yeah. yes they, they really every, everything financing not just <laughs> political financing it's just yeah bc cannot be trusted with the money we, no we ev- need to tax more of it for alberta evidently not um anyways and then we've got a couple other things so starting off with the cabinet shuffle uh i think we had four moves a couple of moves uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould was moved from uh, the Justice Post to Veterans Affairs. Seamus O'Regan has moved from Veterans Affairs to uh, Indigenous Services. Jane Philpott was moved from Indigenous Services to Treasury Board. Scott Bryson left. And David Lametti, formerly a Parliamentary Secretary, uh, entered Cabinet as Justice Minister. So Parliamentary so. Secretary to Industry. Yes. Um, in part because of his heavy background as a law professor specializing in IP. Indeed. And um, also, not to be missed, Bernadette Jordan of Nova Scotia's South Shore uh, has entered Cabinet as the Minister of Rural Economic Development. Uh, interestingly, she is... A lot, everyone assumed she would be under uh, like one of the ICED ministers, but actually is it going to be under infrastructure? Uh, I think it's actually somewhat of a split. Okay, that would make sense. Um, because I, I don't know if we'll actually see a formal mandate letter. I expect that we won't. Eh, who you knows? You kind of have we, to we have might. One, I feel like. But listed in the press release um, that appointed her, not not the press release, but the, the one that joined her appointment yeah um was a brief description of what her responsibilities would be and included broadband internet and they're essentially they were responsibilities that were split over infrastructure and i said yeah i said is sort of top heavy with ministers it sure is um so i mean the the poor saps there who have to figure out what minister needs to sign off on x project i think are going to be having a time yeah um, but it seems like nominally they've put her under infrastructure, probably just cognizant of how many ministers were under ISED. Yes, well, because also, I, ISED is the natural fit there. Also, yeah, it is. And also the notion that, well, you've got the rural, or not the rural, but the um, economic development agencies, the regional ones. Yes. And like most of them serve predominantly rural areas. And the fact that you'll have no institutional connection to that sort of network is going to be kind of odd. Well, she sort of will. Yeah, it's kind of but like, like that, that's not what's, directly. That's what's weird about this portfolio to begin with yes. is just doing like a rural focus. I mean, the agency and the infrastructure behind this isn't going to be unique. It's not going to pop up overnight. It's going to be repurposed yeah. from the internal uh, teams at ISET and infrastructure. Yeah, there might be some juggling. But... It, it's going to be a lot of overlapping Venn diagrams here. Yeah. Um, so all of that to say, like, it, it very well could have been the minister of ACOA. Yeah. Well, um, who is um, Navdeep Baines. Navdeep Baines, because yeah. he's the minister of all the regional yes. development agencies. Um, but, like, 
for all intents and purposes, it's the exact same thing. Like, yeah. I, I don't see it as materially different than that. No. They needed to give her a portfolio. They needed to keep a Nova Scotia MP in. Right. Um, so they crafted a... And it, it seems to have been a position that the Liberal Rural Caucus was asking for yeah. to be in, or at least this is what they've said in the aftermath, so who knows. I mean, if the Rural Caucus was asking for an urban minister, then they would have been wrong. Like, what, what else are they there right. to ask for but yeah. more focus on that one particular issue? Which, fair enough. And, and to be fair to them, I mean, I think it is, like, clearly uh, an issue politically where the Liberals needed to shore up a little bit uh, and show that they're listening to, to rural issues and rural areas about their concerns, etc. So it, I can definitely see the logic here. And often when you look at the breakdown of who owns which rural ridings, um, yes. it's, it's not entirely as conservative as people assume. No, there's whole, I mean, I, I don't even think conservatives Atlanta, hold... Atlanta, Canada is largely rural and 100% liberal. Exactly. I don't, yeah. I don't think conservatives even hold the plurality of rural ridings in Canada. Um, That's... That, yeah, it's difficult. It's probably not that far off. It's, it's one way or the pretty other. close, but the NDP yeah. and the Liberals together. Yeah, I mean, the NDP is a, I think, to a lot of people, surprising number of rural seats. Like, quite a few. A yeah. lot of them in Quebec, uh, but a lot of them outside of Quebec, too. Like, uh, you have the Kootenays, you have uh, the North in a lot of provinces. Um, just some kind of semi random ones that are sort of semi rural, like Essex. Um, yeah, so there you go. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a, it'll be interesting to see what they make of that. But I guess we'll start from the top and talk about um, Scott Bryson's exit, which uh, he's been in politics for forever at this point. Um, he, yeah, for a reasonably young guy. Yeah. He, um, he's, what, 51, I think is what he said in his resignation video. Something like that. At 51, it was time to do new things. Yes. Um, yeah, and he's been an MP for like nearly 20 years i think for anyone unfamiliar with bryson it's worth going back and at least reading his wikipedia page as the guy has an interesting history um well he entered politics as a pc beginning with the pcs and you know his his transition his crossing of party lines yes about halfway through that so yes and his continuing to be reelected in his writing despite crossing the floor which some people make it stick a lot of people don't uh so he was kind of a political force there um and you know he he did make it stick, so good for him. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so him being out is he was also the treasury board secretary, which is from the beginning of the mandate, which is a big job. You're basically the sort of uh, the tightness of the purse strings is determined by by your ability to to scrutinize expenditures. Pedantic technical correction. He was president of the treasury board. What did I say? Secretary. Oh, yeah. Which no. I I believe is a public service position. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um. My yeah, so, I mean, he resigned from that role, basically, your minister, sometimes ministers will run all the way to the end, but yeah. um, he opted out early to give the liberals an opportunity to elevate someone to cabinet and boost their odds. In this in this case, it was Bernadette was the lucky choice. Mm-hmm. Um, Philpott going over to Treasury Board, um, Philpott is seen as a strong performer. Yes. Um, my impression was that, I, I don't know, that INAC or whatever the new acronym disc is for, disc yeah. needed um a change in i, I don't know that they're well, going to benefit greatly from a change in portfolio no in fact, i mean honestly basically and I'll, I'll say this for for philpot is any any job that she's leaving whoever is coming in it, that 
portfolio seeing a demotion and the quality of the person handling it i would say certainly and just in terms of stability and institutional memory for that portfolio yes. being that it's a new portfolio sort of just getting yeah uh, um sort of just finally being divided organizing itself i don't know that seamus oregon is going to really take the reins there very well yeah i mean he was at veterans he had a bit of a rocky rocky tenure there yes. to put it mildly and actually like people think like the legislative assembly or uh, legislative agenda of the government i think is like largely kind of wrapped up at this point but there are actually still a i think what's going to be a fairly contentious piece of indigenous child welfare legislation responding to a human rights tribunal ruling a couple years ago and then several non-compliance orders after that and i think they've made the calculation that the hard part is done because they've done the consultations with the national indigenous organizations and sort of the, the experts, etc. So I think they figure that the, the difficult part is done and parliament will be comparatively easy. Um, we will see, uh, O'Regan may not do himself any favors there, but I guess we'll, we'll see as it sort of a gets tabled, then goes through the legislative process. Uh, also, frankly, I don't see that legislation as having any chance of, actually no. getting royal assent before the election i cannot imagine no i i think at this point i mean the government's still making overtures yes. that legislation will still pass um in time for the election i think that's getting to be i think it's incredibly gonna be, unlikely it's gonna be just like Kelowna, where they're gonna like table good legislation <laughs> and then they're gonna lose and then blame the ndp on it for the rest of time um i so let's go back to philpot yes. for a moment because i think it's important to talk about treasury board and i heard this once when i first came to ottawa that a good way to tell who's been in town or who has a deeper understanding of government is people who, if you ask them what treasury board does mm -hmm. and they respond with something to do with gold, then, uh, <laughs> a little wet behind the ears still. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so Philpott's role at treasury board, treasury board essentially controlling the purse strings and the oversight yes. for, and to be super clear about what exactly treasury board is, treasury board is a committee of cabinet and it is in fact the only one that has to exist. It is a committee we've talked about before, but for refresher for people who haven't listened to the entire back catalog and memorized everything we've ever said. But for that not to be too misleading, it is also essentially a department of government. Well, Treasury Board Secretariat is yes. the department that exists to serve as the support staff, but also formally for but yes. also called Treasury Board informally. Yes, it is TB versus TBS. T yes. a lot, often they're used essentially interchangeably. Yes, which is fair enough because I mean the department does most of the work. I mean it is a political process. Obviously, all government spending is so there is cabinet scrutiny we don't really know what the inner workings of that look like for the obvious reason that everything that happens at a cabinet table uh is that does not come out for 30 years so it would actually would be a fat if someone wants to do a, a good phd go look through cabinet minutes uh back 30 years of oh, pe board meetings would pe be people do this reasonably yeah uh reasonably often yeah uh, though of course you're not never going to get the actual dynamics and everything no so be be because what is recorded is but a fraction of what actually occurs indeed um, it's not like they have audio and video recordings of Treasury Board. Um, but my role in bringing that up was to say that now a lot of the issues the government is having is getting money out the door mm -hmm. uh, on files like infrastructure. Yeah, well, yes, and, and we've talked about the, how much that was a central plank of their 2015 campaign and how little that's actually materialized. But in any spending file across government, the perk of Treasury Board being a central agency 
is that it touches all of those portfolios yeah. and it effectively controls the tabs for mm-hmm. each and every one of them. So you can't put just anyone at Treasury Board. Um, I thought they would go a little smaller with their shuffle, but you know, you it never... was actually reasonably significant. Yeah, it, it was. Um, but all of that is to say, we're coming up towards the end. It looks like they're trying to get money out the door in an efficacious way. Yeah, um, put in their perhaps their top performer to help facilitate that as a justification yeah. for why um, she got that particular position, why she's being pushed out. Yeah, no, I mean, I, it actually, out, I think it makes a ton of sense. I Like I said, I, Philpott is incredibly talented and a very hard worker, and I think she will do a good job at Treasury Board. Uh, but, yeah, it's what, what happens to the whole she leaves that I think will be difficult, and I think people are not super, super thrilled about the prospect of like because not only is it like it it seems to be a demotion of the portfolio right you put in someone who's recognized to not be a particularly strong minister into a portfolio that there are still lots of huge problems yeah it kind of says like we give up uh so that's been part of the reaction to that and i think it's not a out of left field one i think it's it's a pretty reasonable reaction because you're losing a really really strong minister uh, and replacing her with someone who is, and like you know, realistically, like Seamus O'Regan, like we've talked about this before, he's a, he's buddies with the prime minister. He seems to kind of not be able to do any wrong in terms of the slow stream of screw ups from his office. <laughs> uh, do not seem to affect his career in any way. Um, so it's kind of unfortunate, but there you go. Um, and yeah, with with legislation sort of still coming down the pike on um, on indigenous services, yeah, we will see what happens. I think it may get a rocky reception in Parliament that the Liberals were counting on. So the last one, and I guess we've sort of buried the lead here. Uh, the last move to discuss um, is the one that got the most attention, yes. which is Jody Wilson-Raybould's move from Justice to Veterans Affairs. Yeah. Um, in in interpreting this, I, I think it's important to sort of discuss what the perceived hierarchies are among um, departments in government. And of course, everyone believes that veterans' issues are important and they're significant. But there is a huge difference between justice and veterans. Yeah, I mean, justice is really considered like super front bench, like high profile ministry, like one of the top, you know, four or five kind of posts in the government. Veterans... Affairs, I think, did, were, under Harper, was it a minister of state or was it a no, full minister? It was, it was a full ministry. Yeah. Um, Veterans has some interesting things going on. Uh, from So sort of from the, the ranking perspective of ministries, there's what I would call ministries of state, which they no yeah. longer are, but they still are. Yeah. Um, the sort of tourism... I don't know, official languages. Tourism, small business, official languages, La Francophonie, any of these portfolios, often they're sort of gelled together in incoherent ways. Yeah. The regional development agencies, um, actually, I think, were are pretty much always ministers of state. Yes. Not always, but often. Um, so you have all those, and you have ones that pop in and out of existence. I mean, for a while, uh, status of women was a ministry of state. Yes. Um, and what a ministry of state means is effectively that it doesn't have its own um, department behind it. Right. Um, that it's tacked on somewhere else. For instance, um, status of women was attached to PCO, and so operated out of PCO. Like democratic reform, for yeah, instance, doesn't one. have. You, you you don't walk down. 
you know, Spark Street and see the big building that's full of the Democratic Reform Civil Servants. Yes. It's sort of just tacked onto PCO as well. Um, they've changed affairs. They've changed that with status of women and renamed it to whatever it uh, got renamed the other week. I'm not sure what it is. Um, but so there's those ones. Those are sort of the bottom tier, and then there's what are seen as like the entry level um, portfolios. Not because necessarily the issues that they represent are insignificant, because arguably none of the issues any portfolios represent across government are insignificant to but their. It's either like the federal government has a peripheral connection to it, or it's in a supporting policy role rather than a service delivery role. And honestly, even the service delivery roles often are they sort of seen as like they kind of run themselves. Though I don't think that's actually the case. Um, yeah, like Veteran Affairs, I think, is one of the classic sort of entry-level government full ministerial posts. Yes, which, I mean, to an extent is a shame. Well, yeah, um, like, like, yeah like I just said, like because, the service delivery actually is very hard. Yes, because <laughs> it's not it is, something our federal government does well at all. It is one of the more complicated portfolios to run. It's one of the more politically sensitive, but yep. for whatever reason, historically, it's always been treated as a stepping stone to greater things and it's also seen as sort of a sink or swim as some ministers really um, kill their political careers there and others do a passable job and then it's sort of like oh yeah i mean Aaron let's, O'Toole, let's right? move you up Aaron O'Toole was elected in a by-election in sort of the late later days of the the harper majority and was slotted into veterans affairs and by all accounts seemed to have done a fairly good job if you're listening, Aaron, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that was. Uh, but it's it's interesting that you took someone who was like super super front bench, uh, you know, and I think really when she she's been in cabinet since the beginning in that post, I think she was perceived to be, per, and this is actually we should talk about this well, perceived to be one of the stronger performers. No, in the government. No. No, I mean perceived to be right. Like we'll, perceived, we'll circle back. Perceived by who? I mean, let's media. We're, we're there. Yeah, that's per, what. I'm, yeah. Perceived by who? Um, uh, there's there's just so many things I've read about this in the past few weeks that made me want to sort of. Well, this is my exactly smack my smack my again. head into a table. That's exactly my point. Um, reading through more Twitter because this is where this sort of uncensored dialogue happens more so than the actual media stories about it. Yeah. But journalists sort of quickly fell into two camps. Journalists who... And others, like academics. And, and others, academics, yeah. 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 The, the entire commentariat. The Twitterati. Uh, fell into two camps. Those who were bewildered by the decision yeah. and thought that uh, Jody Wilson-Raybel could do no wrong. Yeah. And those that felt like that was coming for a while maybe it was a little sooner than they expected but clearly understood why this decision had been made yeah and in short the decision seems to have been made um because she had poor relationships with her colleagues yes like Inclu- and as, like the, the important colleague here especially the, the, justin trudeau the, colleague, <laughs> the, the first among equals i was gonna say that but in latin prima primus inter pares oh um yeah so anyone you talk to who was reasonably close to government um was aware of this dynamic yeah um and so i mean maybe the commentators in other cities and who aren't in the daily cut and thrust of it were aware of this and who consume their information strictly via media yeah you, you don't become aware of these sort of subplots yeah. and storylines that no, go and, on. and in fairness it was like you wouldn't have seen it unless you're paying very close attention or know people who work in and around government because there were no like big high profile screw ups there was a like sort of 
a lot of people upset about different elements of the justice reform agenda. I think, you know, rightly, there are a lot of issues with it. Um, but there was no, like, single, like, scandal or, like, huge screw-up or, like, really, really, really controversial piece of legislation. There were sort of it kind of little things here. and Well, not little. I mean, for the people who get affected by, by them, they're not little, obviously. But you know what I mean? Like, there was sure. no, like, single thing people could point to that was, like, this is why she's getting demoted. And I think that's what left people kind of confused. So but politics is a team sport, as it turns out. So I... I did see some people point to her track record as mixed. I would, I would um, agree with that. And like, said, like, you know, the liberals yeah. didn't have the wins on justice that they were looking for. No. Um, there were all these controversial... But the, uh, Just wait. Yeah, go ahead. All these controversial constitutional aspects to, yes. to a lot of the bills. But all of that is presuming that cabinet and PMO did not oversee and sign off and approve and accept that risk. It, it sort of presumes... That argument presumes that, like, PMO is blindsided by yeah. the charter risk of any of these bills, and that, I can assure you, would not be the case. Right. Um, well, because part of her job both, as Attorney General of Canada is both to... Both PMO yeah. and Cabinet but would be well aware of the charter risk, and she would present on charter risk, yeah. and so the next well, day... In fact, did, were they the ones that introduced the sort of, like, mandatory pre-charter screening for for bills? I don't, I don't know about mandatory... I think that was the cha- one of the changes. Maybe, they made. yeah, maybe yeah, they. Well, actually, you know, this conversation I think illustrates another reason why people uh, had trouble seeing this is because the justice portfolio is like really quite technical and for lawyers. So people who are not lawyers don't really notice most of the changes, and people will get you know angry about things here and there that make sense to them and kind of crystallize for them. But a lot of it is really like, I won't say invisible, but. At a level that most people are not, it's it's the sort of uh, you know not to to use the term dog whistle in a term that is, in a way that is parallel to how it's usually used. It is uh, in a frequency that most people cannot hear, so they don't pay attention. The cat to whistle. Yes, a cat whistle. That's even better, actually. <laughs> or the bat whistle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to summon Batman. Uh, yeah, I mean that. So here's the thing: when everyone was looking, and any time people look at cabinet shuffles. You have to think about what is known, and that's everything that's been reported in media, yeah. performance in House of Commons, all of those things. And then what are, what are the unknowns? And the unknowns are the relationships with colleagues, uh, performance around the cabinet table, who they've pissed off, yeah. um, all of those things. And so when you, and this often what you see in a cabinet shuffle like this, is that no one else had known except for PMO when they made yeah. this decision that the issues that they perceived around Jody Wilson-Raybould had crystallized to such an extent as to warrant shuffling her out of yeah. a high-profile position um, on the eve of the election. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and it shouldn't go without noting that she responded in sort of a, <laughs> yes. a long letter. She, she responded that she was not commenting, followed by 2,000 words of comment. <laughs> 2,000 words of comment where if you read it very superficially, it's like, oh, that's, you know, boilerplate. But if you if you read into it a little more, it's you, you can certainly feel like there were some... Yeah. S- some scabs being ripped off. So something I've heard, and I think you've heard this as well, is that she, um, one of the big sources of friction was that she was constantly kind of locking horns with Carolyn Bennett and by extension PMO over uh, particularly the indigenous uh, self-governance framework legislation that the government was working on and has since scrapped because it seems there was no consensus. Uh, this was a, pro- uh, a project, I mean, this is a, a thing that she's been working on for a long time, and a lot of what the Liberals were working on came out of actually work that Jody Olson-Raybould had done as BC Regional Chief, 
uh, some time ago. Um, and then to ha- see that kind of get scrapped a couple months ago and then her get demoted right after, I think is not a coincidence. Uh, and once again, it's a, another file where people who are not plugged into that world are not going to see about see it or hear about it uh, because journalists don't really follow it super, super closely. Uh, it requires some expertise that you build up and you know, frankly contacts and people who know they're like the the amount of people who like really know what they're talking about on indigenous rights and governance and i do not include myself among them uh is pretty small uh it's not a super 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 long list so. I, I was expecting an exact figure <laughs> 12 no, the well, answer is 12 it's like, e- like equalization but equalization the number is seven there are seven people who understand how <laughs> equalization works um but yes so I think that contributed a lot to why people felt a little blindsided by this, is the stuff that she was on and the stuff where there was friction was not stuff that was super publicly visible for the most part. So uh, so that's Jody Wilson-Raybould. Anything else to add on that? No, I think let's uh, leave the camera shuffle be. Is there any anyone else interesting? I mean, Lametti I don't really know much about. He seems like a nice guy. Um, <laughs> he's a lawyer. Uh, he was a law prof at McGill as well. He, so. he, he's a lawyer. One of the initial reactions I heard uh, what's along the lines of, oh, but he does IP. The federal yeah. government doesn't do that much IP. They which, sure which, do. Which is wrong. <laughs> it's very wrong. It's wrong, but the point remains. The federal government does do effectively all IP. They, yes. <laughs> but I think the way to phrase it more properly would be that it's not a big share of what they do. In terms of, like, the justice portfolio yeah. is much broader yes. and actually, than just the I So he's a you know a yeah. world-leading expert in IP, but that is but a sliver yes. of the broader justice and it's, portfolio. And it's worth noting that the government was doing, or I think, no, they've recently announced their IP strategy. Uh, the, the sort of national IP strategy was, is it recently announced or was it sort of the consultations just wrapped up? I don't know that it's been announced. Okay. But there, but there it, are... it, was a, it was a big piece that I said I was working on that is now moving into its either final stages or has been released. Sorry. we. And there's, I mean, there's heads. the statutory review of the yeah. Copyright Act. There's, there's yes. a bunch, I mean, needless to say, there's lots of different IP pieces. Yeah. Um, but just as you become a specialist in any field... I mean, it, it is only one fraction of what justice does. Yeah. And a lot of the more high-profile things at justice are the criminal law yeah. parts of it. So, Well, it tends to be what is politically controversial. Yeah. yeah. So a, a bit of a pivot there away from, you know, the drunk driving and sure. criminal law reform and mandatory minimums to wonkier IP law. Yeah, which we'll, is we'll, important. We'll see how that trickles down. Yes. Uh, we could do a whole episode on IP at some point. Uh, it would actually be kind of fun. So, okay, that'll probably do it for the cabinet shuffle, unless there's any other comments you want to make or ministries you want to highlight. No, I no. think we're pretty good. Uh, okay, so the other... The, the, okay, that was the meat and potatoes. Now, this is this is the, the sticky pudding that we've all been waiting for. So, last November, there was an odd occurrence in the BC legislature where it seemed like very suddenly uh, the sergeant-at-arms and the clerk of the legislature were sort of frog-marched out of the building and placed on administrative leave without pay or with pay actually it's always with pay yes of course um this people were like what just happened and then there wasn't a whole lot of explanation forthcoming from anybody in the bc legislature no until just the other day when Speaker of the BC Legislature, Daryl Plekis? Plekis. Plekis, okay. A former BC Liberal who was kicked out of his caucus after accepting uh, the position of Speaker um, and is now an independent, released a bombshell report about... Uh, I'd like to say... Come on. Everyone describes them as bombshell reports. It's a cliche. But this one really was. I mean, it's just... 
it's completely bonkers. If if half of what's in there is true, if an eighth of what's in there is true, it would be like heads would be rolling. Like it's anyway. Yeah. So basically, how he goes into this is when he's being led into his office as the new speaker. <laughs> He, he notices, like, these fresh-cut flowers and, like, all the... And he's like, wow, this is, like... You replace these every week? That's, like, damn, that's a lot of, a lot of flowers. Yes, sir. And then he opens, like, the liquor cabinet. <laughs> and he says, wow, that's some expensive scotch. And his assistant, who's, you know, as speaker, who's someone who's been in that office, sometimes says, if they're not good enough for you, we can get others. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, this was odd to me because uh, I know that, like, you can't actually buy alcohol on, like... It's not the, not typical. Alcohol purchases budget. are highly scrutinized, typically. Yes. Though the speaker's scotch in House of Commons seems to... I wonder how that works. Anyway. It's sold at the gift store. I guess so. It is. Speaking yeah. of gift stores... <laughs> no, but honestly, like, for me, it's like this sort of dumb guy noir genre uh, that, like, this report reads like. I don't even know what that means. Like the noir genre? Like, you're familiar with the noir genre? Yes. Yeah, so it's kind of like, yeah, if you walked into my <laughs> office. And it was just kind of like that, but it was just like incredibly petty shit and like kind of written from this like very naive viewpoint. It's very good. Anyway, like read it as a piece of like naive crime fiction and you'll really enjoy it. Oh Guaranteed. Except, except it's not fiction. Yeah, except it's not fiction is the best part. So what happened basically is the clerk of the legislature and this is where the tip of the iceberg here is the expenses but the clerk of the legislature and the sergeant at arms appeared to have been going on trips basically on the thinnest pretenses imaginable expensing just about everything they could lay their mitts on to the legislature uh and like as tan mentioned uh, gift shops like half of what these guys were buying is like commemorative mustard and like <laughs> packs of cards and like pens and but to the notebooks tune, like as anyone who's been in a gift store knows this is not the most cost effective way to buy stationery um so it's to the, to the tune of thousands of dollars there were yes. like and all that suits oh the suit, um, well this is the the really ballsy thing is basically they kept joking that it was part of the uniform haha <laughs> uh, yes which is it's like yeah i Frankly, misusing public money like that is it's not it's not something you should do. But they would basically joke about how it was part of the uniform. Like there was once, I think they like the guy bought like a thousand dollar Brooks Brothers suit and crossed out uh, the tie and wrote tabs instead, like the big like white floppy judicial tabs that uh, the sort of um, house administration wears. And they literally called the store to ask if they sell tabs. They said no. It was just a hundred percent lie. Changed the color on the yeah, receipt, like from blue to black, charcoal to gray, charcoal or whatever it yeah, was. Yeah, charcoal to gray. Or because to black, because that was part of the uniform. Yes. Uh, like watches, a House of Commons in the UK, like watches that they like bought. So all, in addition to all of these there's petty travel. things, there's uh, travel on. False pretenses. Yes. Well, the transportation um, expenses, too. Just the, like, executive limousines instead of, like, taking with a cab. or tons of limousines. Huge um, amounts of money. Spousal travel as well. Yes. Uh, at one point, they go into his office and pull out a calendar and say, where do you want to go this year? Like, yeah, pick like, out your destinations and, and we'll, we'll find, find a... And stupid security pretense or yeah. something to ship you off. I think my favorite one is the one where they go to Seattle, and it's like they spend, like, thousands of dollars on Mariners tickets, and, like, it was just... 
it was kind of it was kind of funny to me because it was just like really tourist shit that people from BC do in Seattle. Yeah. It was uh, yeah, it was there, a good laugh. But... There was a buzz, a bizarre obsession with going to the United Kingdom. Well, yeah, and, like, I, mean, I get the sense meeting these guys nominally are... with like. MI5, like, yeah. I'm sorry, but the BC legislature does not need security briefings by MI5. Yeah. Like, it's not the, it's not the, uh, the six eyes and the BC legislature is there <laughs> among, the like, Canada, the United States, New Zealand, and then you have the BC sergeant at arms. Yeah. Like, no, well, the funny thing insanity. is that the speaker literally says at one point, like, I don't want to be rude to the hosts, but, like, if this was stuff we could have gotten from, like, a nominal Google search, <laughs> <laughs> like, just nothing special. So a lot of people focused on some of the more outrageous items, like the wood splitter, which was in- admittedly incredibly funny. So like a an automated wood splitter, and the pretense was that should a tree <laughs> fall on the BC legislature, uh, and there were no emergency services and they had to just like break up a tree, they needed the log splitter. And then they literally took it to the clerk's house, and then like the the speaker follows up the description of the rationale with. I, st- I don't really see how this would have been useful to the legislature, seeing as it was at his house. <laughs> also, I looked at a map of the BC legislature to the Google Street View around. I'm like 80% sure there was not even a tree that could hit the legislature. <laughs> so I'm just going to put that out Obstruct there. the sidewalk. <laughs> not only do you need to chainsaw it down, you need to then chop it in and split the wood yes. into fire log just or firewood. Case, just in case civilization has collapsed. So, I mean, we're joking about all of this, but there's all very obviously egregious, yes. egregious. Well, and this isn't touching the HR stuff, right? Which is him basically like taking cash in lieu of vacation, though obviously always going on vacation on <laughs> no, the flimsy not, not vacation on work trips. Yes. Uh, as well as these like retirement allowances that I don't really understand. I, I feel like someone in HR should have like been doing this episode with us so she could explain all the, uh, explain so all the benefits. They, they explained it a little bit there that they're the way they were exempt from whatever act. So there was a need at one point in to... like 1984. It was like a handful of like yeah, but I'm just like I yeah yeah it was like. And then they Ridiculous. just continued to cash checks for their retirement to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. There was one deputy clerk who said something to the effect of, oh, they're doing this again. (laughs) And then went on to explain it and then had returned her check the last time they cut one for her of their scam. Like There was one thing where they literally, like, had a memo that someone had kept a copy of because they were worried that it was going to be destroyed to hide the evidence. Like, so... It was honestly, like, it was really thick of it, but also just by very stupid people. Plekis explains this a little bit throughout that he signed off on... um, a degree of this spending. I don't know if it's all of it. I don't know how their uh, approval authorities work for spending. But that he signed off on some of these things because he was fe- he feared that if he didn't, the documents would be destroyed and he wouldn't have any evidence. Well, there was literally like one of these retirement allowance things. He walks in, asks for the signature, and he's like, I can sign this right now or I can say no. And if I say no, he's going to walk away and put it in the shredder. Yes. Right? Like, I can rescind the signature. Uh, yeah. If, if I can unilaterally give yeah. this benefit, I can unilaterally rescind it. So I'm going to assign it so it becomes filed and then it can be referred to in my yeah. pending like, investigation. Genuinely ridiculous. Like, um, just so much going on here. So, I mean... It, it, it notes or it's worth saying that all of these are allegations that have not yet been proven in court yeah big um, by the way just read the report honestly it is the most fun 
76 pages you can read cover to cover that was written by a speaker of a legislature like it is honestly gripping reading it is incredibly fun you really owe it to yourself to read it i'll um, put it in the the link not not having the greatest background on the bc legislature and the history of the bc legislature it does seem like the rock goes deep here yeah there's been um, a lot of like follow-up there were a lot of bc reporters uh namely i think it was shaw who were tweeting about his history of trying to report on expense issues yeah. in British Columbia. Well, there's a and committee that's like the Board of Internal Economy, uh, or the equivalent of, called the LAMC Legislative Something Management yeah. Committee. Yeah. Legislative Affairs, probably. And that was at, like closed-door meetings, much like BOIE, but also like a kind of culture of like, we're not going to talk about anything that's discussed there. Like a BOIE, for all that, it could sometimes be a bit of a partisan shit show. Um the sort of administrative details never were controversial. Like, there's never been this kind of, like, scandalous spending in the House of Commons from the, like... You know, sometimes you'll get you'll get issues with members well, and senators, obviously. Let, we went through that we last time. the Senate. Yeah, but, but uh, like, in terms of, like, actual, like, uh, the nonpartisan, like, House administration and Senate administration, this, this doesn't happen. So here's... It's worth reading some of Rob Shaw's um, description about the... L-A-M-C, which doesn't roll off the tongue nearly as well as Lamp. the uh, Board of Internal Economy. I still remember getting told that MLA oversight meetings were held over drink in the Speaker's and Speaker Bill Beresov's office with Mac, Min, and crew. No public allowed, no agenda, minutes kept rolling released years later, and they were at best a few lines. Yeah. Have questions? Get lost, kid. Oh, speaking of Beresov, actually, so you, you mentioned Rocco Steve, like, two former speakers, I think, like, clearly were kind of, like, aware that some of this stuff was going on not least because one of the uh, section k alleged truckload of alcohol if you read the <laughs> report uh, was being loaded up to deliver to Beresov's house uh in the okanagan from victoria so quite a trip so i mean we, we could go through the details of this forever i, I mean i could do, i could do a whole podcast on this um but all like this... this is our spin-off investigative series now but, like, all of this is, I mean, there's a pretty appalling track record here that I think needs to be very thoroughly audited by yeah. third parties well, because... This is, yeah, this is the beauty of it. it sorry, it's diving into details. It's so good. But, uh, like, the speaker went up to the sergeant-at-arms about some of the concerns he had. And he said, yeah, you know, we don't really want a police or an audit near this. And the speaker was like, well, that seems like a bad sign. <laughs> and then there's also the backstabbing between the clerk yeah. and the sergeant-at-arms who were both ostensibly yeah, in on these scams. He arced a bit, the sergeant-at-arms. Like, oof. Yeah. So, I mean, all that is say, like, what, what's so what's the solution here? Uh, detailed audit. Yeah. Third party. Get me the best of the best. Some sort of forensic auditing going through all the books. And yeah. I, I honestly think it should go back several generations of speaker. Yeah, um, or at least, I mean, the last, like, like, 15, 20 years. Keep sure. going back until you do not find any more rot. So, like, the there was also a, an angle here that gets mentioned early in the report, which is that uh, the sergeant-at-arms tells the speaker uh, he's concerned that the clerk is too close to the BC Liberal Party. Uh, he had been the commission, or the chief electoral officer for the province in a, in a bizarre process where the previous one had been sort of, had retired under the knowledge that he would not be renominated. And then they sort of snuck him in as the acting one without the sort of normal process of like scrutiny that the legislature does. And then it had a pretty controversial tenure as the chief electoral officer. 
and then was put in as clerk without hearings, which uh, the opposition at the time, the NDP, voted against, which is super, super, super rare. Uh, like, usually this stuff is totally uncontroversial. Um, so there does seem to be a, a partisan angle there, but, like, BC legislative expense scandals seem to be bipartisan for the most part, so we will see what happens when people start shaking this tree, and I hope this tree does get shaken. Um, you, you ever see, like, how a cherry picker picks cherries? I've seen how olive pickers pick olives. Is it is it by a little machine that rolls up and it kind wraps of itself? It? No, no, oh. no, different. Oh, one, the olive ones are great. There's fruit picking devices that are like these U-shaped things that go around the trunk, right? And then just like vibrate it like a paint can. <laughs> and there's a big umbrella that catches all of the cherries. Oh, that's kind of cool. This, so this, we need that. This is effectively well, get, what's required. Get the log splitter guy. He might have one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure they can have a hookup for that. Yeah. So what, what is there to say about this? I mean, like, I think now every legislature and including the House of Commons and the Senate are going to be looking just to make sure there are no skeletons in their closet. I would genuinely be surprised if anything close to the scale of this went on anywhere else. This seems to have been a f- very BC being the Wild West uh, sort of thing. Uh, so I don't know. I, th- I think there'll be some, some more scrutiny of this kind of stuff. I think the, the one, like, big thing in the House of Commons, but it's, it's, it's allowed, is the sponsored travel. Um, but I think if Canadians like knew about that system more and it was like more prevalent and talked about more, they would not like it. Do you, do you want to do a cursory explanation of what sponsored? I think we've is? talked about it before. So the conflict yeah, of interest like code, two sure, years ago, yeah. the conflict of interest code basically has a provision where you can't accept gifts except for sponsored travel, which is where an organization uh, pays for an MP to travel somewhere on some kind of fact-finding mission. Very often, they're treated as kind of like. You go, you do a couple days of meetings, and then you you take the weekend or a long weekend to you know you know just visit wherever you are. You can bring a spouse with you, you can bring staff with you, um, you can bring all sorts of people with you. Um, I believe when Patrick Brown was an MP, he he may have combined that by bringing one of his staffers. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, and yeah, he actually went on a lot of trips, Patrick Brown, off into India. Actually, yeah, I mean, there's because he was really close with Modi for whatever reason. It's kind of like a weird connection there, but anyway, yeah, that's really neither here nor there. It, it goes, it goes back away. Yeah, but every like this gets published quarterly. The conflict commissioner like publishes a sort of like who's gone on trips, um, and it's publicly available. You can go see. Uh, but yeah, I I personally don't love the system. I mean, uh, there's there's small articles that come out of this. Uh, the rule of thumb is don't be the person at the top of the list. Yes. Um, with the most elaborate sponsored travel to the most countries because then you just look like a jet-setting MP. Uh, But, I mean, largely everyone's aware it exists. People from all parties do it. Mm -hmm. Um, No party has taken a hard line against it for fear, perhaps, of upsetting one of the perks of their backbench MPs. Because, I mean, yeah, especially government, like, you just don't have a lot to do. There's there's something to be said that if we want our MPs to go to foreign countries to learn about things, maybe those governments... Maybe our government or our institutions should be paying for that. Yeah, that would um, make more sense. Rather than, like, just these friendship missions. Like, uh, yeah, I, I don't. I don't think anyone is a great defender of the system, um, but as it exists, everyone avails themselves of it. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's been no scandals with X person goes on trip to taiwan and then votes in favor of taiwanese whatever yeah um because there's not really often a direct line between foreign governments and the role of 
MPs, particularly yeah. backbench and opposition MPs. Um, if it were parliamentary secretaries or ministers, it would be a dramatic, a reasonably different story. Um, but because MPs don't often do anything related to foreign policy um, beyond like parliamentary friendship committees. Uh, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll see how this shakes out and whether people, you know, take a harder look at some perks in different legislatures and see if there's some they, they'd rather not see anymore. But, yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate because, it, like, I do sincerely think that most people who get into public service in, in every party are people who genuinely, like, do it because they care and want to sort of be leaders in their communities and actually make a difference. And that's great. But when this kind of stuff happens, it makes everyone look bad, especially in this case where it's not even elected officials. And yeah, it also like hurts the reputation of the public service and of public servants. So that's like really unfortunate. But I mean, they, <laughs> these guys, I think this was not like they didn't stumble into this, right? Like it was pretty concerted and for a long time. So anyway, good. We'll see what happens. Good riddance. Um, you had some concerns about some stuff our ambassador to China said. John McCallum. John McCallum. John McCallum. The John McCallum. King. So John McCallum was like the story of the day today. Um, today is Wednesday. Today is Wednesday. The twenty third of January. <laughs> Thank you um, for summoning. Uh, so, I mean, he came, I believe, to Ottawa earlier this week to brief MPs on, on the situation with China. Um, yeah, there was an in-camera committee meeting about yeah. this, yes. Which, details of which then leaked. And, as, as, yes. as happens. Um, and then he did a, clo- not a closed door, but a media presser, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, invite only with Chinese media. Yeah. Um, and essentially no domestic media, which, I mean, he telegraphs pretty well who he wanted his out, his audience to be. Yeah. And then to that media, he made um, what was essentially amounted to a defense of the Yahweh or Huawei. <laughs> Yahweh. The, Huawei. The Huawei executive that the Canadian government has arrested. The and Yahweh det- executive is a much more formidable figure. <laughs> <laughs> and detained pending extradition to the United States. Um, and I'm going to presume everyone's familiar with that, and I don't need to go into the background there. No, but we don't need to go into the background. What is interesting about all this is just what the government um, is selling this process to entail versus what the Department of Justice website says about what this process yeah, is. Yeah, there's a fairly large discrepancy here. Um, so... Before McCallum's comments, Trudeau and Jody Wilson-Raybould's comments were pushing that this was, you know, rule of law, an independent process. It's everyone's favorite word or phrase this month. Uh, Rule of law, rule of law, rule of law. And, I mean, that is a good defense when it comes to why we detained this individual in the first place, uh, in contrary to the comments of our former deputy prime minister, who said like, yeah, I should have just strategically bungled it. Um, or who said this? John Manley. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Um, we should have so- something to that effect. Um, but which is like bad and horrible. And that's generally not how our country operates. Um, so for- forget maybe that. It was, maybe it was when he was prime minister, I guess. So forget that. And, yeah, yeah there, there's been a lot of articles written about this. So yeah. let's not go too far down that rabbit hole. Um, but the government's really been painting this as a judicial not process. Our, not a, yeah. 
Yeah, which is, you know, that is a, yes, that's a strategy that is often used. And so McCallum, to say something in his remarks today, talked about how this was a judicial process. It's before a judge. I don't know if he said trial, but it was reported as trial. Um, so what I want to do is I want you to read some excerpts from articles that I've picked. And I'm going to read excerpts in contrast from the general overview of the Canadian extradition process presented by the Department of Justice. Okay, well, let's pull up uh, <laughs> Ambassador McCallum's comments here. I think she has quite good arguments on her side, he said. One, political involvement by comments from Donald Trump in her case. Two, there's an extraterritorial aspect to her case. And three, there's the issue of Iran sanctions, which are involved in her case, and Canada does not sign on to these Iran sanctions. So I think she has some strong arguments that she can make before a judge, Globe and Mail. Okay. Let's talk about what the judge is doing. Um, under the section entitled Extradition Hearings, Judicial Phase. At the extradition hearing, the judge hears the case in two ways. I'm only going to mention one. The other one isn't relevant. If the individual is sought to stand trial, the judge determines if the evidence provided by the extradition partner, in this case the United States, is sufficient to commit the person for trial in Canada if the conduct had occurred in this country. Right. The judicial phase of the extradition process is a determination only that the evidence is sufficient to warrant that the person be extradited. It is not a trial. A trial will take place in the requesting state or entity if surrender is ordered. Hmm. Um, so what that says is that the political arguments, the, ar the arguments of political interference in the United States, is completely irrelevant for the decision the judge is to be making here. Right. The judge is making a determination as to whether or not there is evidence presented by the host country of the crime that the extradition is being requested for. Yeah. Which is So what is her role in this proceeding? Like the the person being extradited or not, as the case may be. So I'm not I'm not going to purport to be a an expert. Maybe she can present um, counter evidence as a defense counsel would. Yeah. Um, but the the evidence that you're going to present, if if that is in yeah, fact it's not, the it's case, not a trial is not is not evidence that it, there's political interference. Sure. It's evidence that the crime did not occur in the first place. A crime as determined by the host country. Right. So that, if anything, and I'm not even sure that's the case, yes, um, is what it would be. Not that Donald, Tr your, your honor, Donald Trump stated this, therefore this is political. Yeah. Because that's not what the judge is making a determination right. on. Right, and that leads us into his second thing. McCallum said a judge will ultimately make the decision on whether she should be extradited and stress there has been zero involvement by the federal government. Right, and this is, this is like the issue because it is not up to a judge. Ultimately. So... It is ultimately 100% not up to a judge, and there has been zero involvement by the federal government. I mean, she was arrested by the RCMP, so it's... <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of questions, like, what, do, what constitutes zero involvement by the federal government? Because that seems like a sweeping claim. Yes. Um, and so, let, let me read a... A line from the surrender of person ordered to be extradited. Let me actually just read the entire section because it's short and it's all relevant. Um, the Minister of Justice makes the decision with respect to whether the person will be surrendered to the extradition partner. That is pretty unambiguous. Yes. And then if you're thinking, oh, maybe it's deferred to officials. The minister must decide on the surrender of the individual based on the wording of the Extradition Act. This decision cannot be delegated to any officials 
Her discretion is a broad one, uh, but must not be exercised arbitrarily. Which... It's purely a judicial process. There may come a time when the justice minister is required to give a view, but that will not be for some months to come. That seems to soft pedal what the act says pretty substantially. No, yeah. it's <laughs> it's largely a executive process. <laughs> There will be a time when the minister is required to give their view, and that might not be for months. Yeah, and their view will be binding. And, like, not just like, oh, well, you know. So there's the option to appeal to the court if the minister is deemed to have acted arbitrarily, and okay. that, that can go back and forth. But we're not going to get into the appeals process. Sure. For the intents of the phases that we're talking about here, like, it is unambiguously incorrect. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the ambassador to China, folks. So there we go. Uh, so, anything else on that? Or I mean, you st you're still going? You still got some steam well, in the, I, in the I, boiler? I do still have steam because then the question becomes, why is he making these statements, right? And so with McCallum, perhaps the inclination is that, and there's been a lot, if he's, if he's freelancing, he should be dismissed. With McCallum, there's always the question as to whether or not he's doing this with the blessing of PMO and his, his masters. <laughs> Um, his, his political masters. Um, I think you have to presume that's the case. I mean, this is an intensely political case. And I think, generally speaking, when politicians talk about the rule of law, they say that because they don't want to say something that's more unpopular than saying that. So I think that's, that's likely a factor at work here. So... It's not the rule of law part, but it's the she has a strong case. Yeah. She's trying to soft sell it. He got put up to go speak to Chinese press and tell them a very the message that they wanted to hear. Yeah. This is very clearly a strategic move and not a blunder. Like, very, very clearly. Yeah. And it, I think it should therefore be evaluated on its merits as a strategic move rather than the presumption of... Oh, he screwed up. He's... Yeah. Like, he happened to stumble into a meeting of the... <laughs> Canadian Chinese press oh, and, there. <laughs> and told them what they wanted to hear rather than this yeah. was the strategy going into it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, all, all of that is, I mean, as you read through these stories, so many of them have not properly explored what the extradition process actually looks like mm -hmm. in a very simple way so that narratives like the narrative that McCallum is pitching have taken hold. Which are, you know, if, if you read the general overview of the Canadian extradition process, you're completely disillusioned from this immediately. Yeah. Which people don't do because they got deadlines. Here, here we are. There we go. They should. Um, they should do those things. I guess one last point for today is we are now, as, as I mentioned earlier, January 23rd. What was, what happened yesterday or what was supposed to happen yesterday, Etienne? Um, I'll, I'll tell you. Yesterday was supposed to be Nicola Diorio's last day as a parliamentarian. It was the day he had announced would be his date of submitting a resignation. Uh, he did not do that, as far as anyone can tell. Do, and do you wanna... there's no word from him on that subject. So, <laughs> I mean, he had to submit his... Do you, do you actually want to backtrack and say who Nicola... Oh, we've been over this. No, Everyone just say it again. Okay. There's, there's new a listeners. Liberal, liberal MP who didn't show up for all of fall... Uh, and hadn't shown up since the spring, and he said, uh, I'm going to resign, but as soon as I finish my secret mission from the Prime Minister, um, there was a bit of a kerfuffle with the NDP asking the Speaker to examine uh, like a formal censure of some kind. Um, 
it was a whole process and the speaker ended up saying no um but yeah we like he basically just says like okay fine i'm gonna resign in january uh and it's now january and he well he, yeah, he gave the very specific, specific day. day. Yes, yeah, but we'd been over that, so I assume um, the listeners were intelligent enough to remember <laughs> back 45 seconds ago when I said Goldfish, I tell you, they're all goldfish. Yeah, um, yeah which is fun, so, so I mean, we'll this see. saga will continue to be fun. To do a 30-second look ahead, I mean, the House of Commons resumes sitting on January 28th. Which is to say next Monday. Which is next Monday. Uh, the Senate... Uh, a little later, Senate, Senate committees will <laughs> right. begin to return. That but the week. chamber will not actually have a sitting until a little later because of the building not being quite done. The post post fifteenth, um, and then one of the big questions comes up very quickly is budget question mark. Yeah, we're getting there. And Q budget speculation. Yeah, February March is typically when it comes out for people who don't follow the federal budget cycle often it's been later yeah um let's say like late winter early spring yeah but the the other kicker uh of the parliamentary calendar is that there is only one sitting week in march Mm -hmm. um so that entire month is nearly a wash yeah so So. i would imagine last week of february is probably a safe bet because then mps will back in the writings being like hey look at the budget was good or middle march or yeah Yeah, that would be kind of yeah i suppose it could happen that'd be a little odd though to just have like one week with the budget and then you're gone the two week before or two go, weeks after. Go sell. Yeah. Just seems like you'd want to maximize that selling time. Anyway. Well, yes, but the, the challenge with budget is getting it done for the deadline yes, you set, right? That is true. That, that it's not like it's not already in the hopper yes. today and, and course, they're like, give me the perfect day. <laughs> of course, this will be an election year budget, so it should be at least uh, bloated. Festive. Yeah, and fun. <laughs> so that'll probably do it for us today. Uh, thank you once again for, for listening to the episode, if you've made it this far. Uh, we will have a very special guest next week, uh, which should be a really good time. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Uh, we didn't actually have a beer this time, I just realized. I didn't really think about that. My mouth is dry and pasty feeling. Yeah, sorry about that, Jen. Very uh, exciting. This... We will have a beer next week with a special guest. How about that? Perfect. There we go. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. And until next time.